The podcast that you're listening to is being presented to you with the cooperation of the SJ Network. If you're a person who needs a publicist and you want to appear on podcasts, contact Stephen Joyner at s-j-network.com. Let's get on with the show. Henry, I didn't know that you had a telescope. Dr. Paul Sutter of the Ask a Spaceman podcast is today's guest. I know. This was a gift from the Sherpa. I love looking up at the solar system and just wondering about the mysteries of our universe. That's wonderful. It's nice to see that you're expanding your horizons. I'm trying to. Plus, it also comes in handy when it's bikini night, at the pub across the valley. Looks like your horizons just got a bit narrower. Attention Rebels of the Sure Pollution. Today's podcast is being sponsored by Audible, the home of audiobooks and podcasts, where there are over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. If you'd like a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to www.audibletrial.com slash Sherpa. And now Mr. Bruce will lead you into the Sherpa Chalet. As a reminder, the restrooms are located near the yellow snow. Welcome to Too Many Podcasts, the podcast about podcasts. Now, podcasting from the Sherpa Chalet on Mount Podcastia, he's your host, Jim, the podcast Sherpa. Hello there, Rebels, and welcome to Too Many Podcasts, the podcast about podcasts and so much more. Guess what? If you had plans to not listen to a guy named Jim, the podcast Sherpa today, guess what? Your day's already screwed up, but don't worry. You want to stay right here and listen to this show. Why? Because I have something to tell all of you, and it's very important, and I hope that you're sitting down while I'm telling you this news. Get ready. One, two, three. It's a theme week. It's theme week. It's theme week. It's theme week. And this week's theme is the universe. That's right. And not that you want to get your information on the universe from a podcast Sherpa, but you want to hear it from our guest today. Who's our guest today, Sherpa? His name is Dr. Paul Sutter, and he is the host of a podcast called Ask a Spaceman. And he is also an astrophysicist, a cosmologist, an author, a professor, and a researcher, and so much more, too. Just like me, so much more. Well, I don't know, I'm with that podcaster thing. But anyway, as I mentioned just before, his podcast is called Ask a Spaceman, and boy, did I ask him. I had a bunch of questions about the universe. I listen to a lot of science podcasts, and sometimes when I'm done, I just get this feeling like there's something I just don't understand. And he was able to clarify a lot of those things that I didn't understand. And there are a lot of questions that people probably wonder about the universe, and I asked them on your behalf. But you can actually contact Dr. Sutter if you want one of your questions featured on his podcast. Really interesting conversation. There is a lot of information on this. You're going to feel a lot smarter after you're done listening to this. I can guarantee you. I know I felt a lot smarter after we finished this interview. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So let's have a listen to my conversation with Dr. Paul Sutter of Ask a Spaceman. Hello there, Rebels. We are in the planetarium of the Sherpa Chalet 
And I've got the perfect guy to be with me in this planetarium. He is a professor. He is a researcher who has over 60 published works. He is an astrophysicist, a cosmologist. In the collegiate world, he is a teacher, advisor, a mentor. He is a public speaker. He's been on television. He is an author of two books, which we will talk about. And he is also a podcaster on the podcast called Ask a Spaceman, and this is Dr. Paul Sutter. Dr. Sutter, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. This is going to be a lot of fun. As I was mentioning to Paul earlier, he has definitely come to my rescue. This was one of my goals for this season to get to talk about space, and the only space I know is about the, the space between my ears, so <laughs> I've got the right guy to give me a lot of great answers today. Let's start at the beginning. Was there something growing up that interested you in the universe? Oh, yeah. It was the whole entire universe. I remember distinctly growing up and gobbling down every single book I could about space and astronomy and the stars. It was always a passion of mine. And, but along with a lot of other things, I was obsessed with uh, biology and paleontology and, and just, just love digging deep into these topics and absorbing like a sponge anything I could get my hands on. And uh, like like that that love of learning and curiosity and just, just devouring information has always been with me. But when I was in high school, I remember reading books about physics, uh, getting interested in it, but, but always assuming that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't good enough, that, that science was done by people much smarter than me. And so I didn't even think of it as a career path. Instead, I, I was, I'm a super computer nerd and I was and I still am. And so I went into computer science as like an actual practical job. And I was getting pretty disillusioned with it, pretty bored with it. In my third year, I took an astronomy elective just for fun. And got talking to my professor and my professor said, look, if you're interested in this science stuff, you're actually pretty good at it. You can be a scientist. That's all it took. It took someone to tell me that I could be a scientist for me to actually realize that I could be a scientist. And so less than a week later, I switched majors to physics and never looked back. And I know you're also on the Weather Channel, too. You're their resident space guy. Yeah, uh, the Weather Channel is so much fun. I started working with them back in 2017 to cover the great American eclipse, you know, that one that stretched all the way across the United States and mm-hmm. And 100 million people were within the path of it. It was, um, they were ramping up their coverage. I got connected to the Weather Channel uh, because I made some sarcastic tweet, which is half my tweets. And it caught the attention of a, of a vice president of content and said, and she reached out and said, uh, let's talk. And I had done local news stuff at the time I was living in Columbus, Ohio, and I've been on news in Columbus. And so I was able to show them some of the work I've done. And we developed a relationship. I co-hosted their live eclipse coverage. I was down in Nashville, Tennessee for that and spent the whole day with them covering it. And then we've just had a relationship ever since. And I've uh, since become their official space specialist 
So whenever there's space news that they want to cover, uh, they bring me on. I was just on uh, this morning, actually, talking about NASA's ingenuity, a helicopter on Mars, uh, nearby black holes, and the launch of the Crew-2 mission up to the International Space Station. With all the talk of climate change and everything like that, are there events that happen in space that would like directly affect our climate? Yeah, so like if the sun were to blow up, that'd probably be bad <laughs> news for the Earth's climate. Um, yes, yes, things in space do alter and affect the Earth's climate. Uh, in fact, there are certain cycles that the Earth goes through where our average distance from the sun slowly changes over time. Sometimes it's on average a little bit farther. Sometimes it's on average a little bit closer. This is all due to the intricate, complicated gravitational interactions of all the planets combined uh, affecting the orbit of the Earth. And so we go through periods of tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years of, of these slight climate changes changes. Uh, we think this is one of the main drivers of our ice age. And then also the sun uh, can vary its output over time. Like it's slowly getting brighter and hotter as it ages. So the dinosaurs tens of millions of years ago knew a slightly dimmer, slightly weaker sun. And in like 500 million years, it'll be too hot and the oceans will boil. But that's that's someone else's problem. <laughs> so so definitely uh, on very long timescales, we're talking geological timescales, space does affect Earth weather. The day-to-day -day stuff, the global warming stuff, uh, that's all caused by the Earth itself or, or activity on the Earth. And I know there is always a, a big debate about that, about global warming, but I think the Earth has really changed temperatures since its existence anyway. Oh, of course, of course. The Earth has uh, continuously changed temperatures over the course of millions of years. But what we're seeing with global warming really is different. I mean, yes, the Earth has been warmer in the past than it is right now. But what we're seeing that does appear to be different is how quickly it's getting warmer. When the Earth raises its temperature by a degree or two, it usually takes like a 100,000 or a million years to do it. And now we're seeing it happen in a 100 years or 200 years. And that rapid rate of change is due to the increased carbon emissions acting as a greenhouse gas. And this does appear to be unprecedented in the Earth's history. As we mentioned, you are the author of two books, uh, Your Place in the Universe, Understanding Our Big Messy Existence, and How to Die in Space, A Journey Through Dangerous Astrophysical Phenomena. We should tell the listeners that even though the second one is a how to die in space, it's not necessarily an instruction manual. It's just <laughs> the realities of what happens in space, whether you're looking up in the sky or not. Uh, exactly. So how to die in space, it's an excuse to talk about some really, really fun and cool astrophysics. It's, it's just a framing device. It's a hook about all the dangerous things in the universe, which turns out to be the vast majority of the universe. With everything that you've learned so far about galaxies in the universe and stars and planets, is there anything that still just blows your mind that you just really can't get past? Oh, like all of it blows my mind. And that's what some of the joy is, is that you know, we're talking about entire stars 
turning themselves inside out and detonating in less than a second. We're talking about galaxies merging over the course of a hundred million years and releasing more energy than you can possibly imagine. We're talking about the growth and evolution of the entire universe as a single physical object. And we're using what our experiments on the earth, we're using our observatories and our telescopes, we're using our mathematics to grapple with these massive concepts and just objects that span light years and, and spend millions of years to, to, to evolve. And if we can understand all this and we can grapple with it and we can make predictions and we can do science, like the whole thing is amazing. I neglected to bring up that you actually have an involvement with linking music and dance to astronomy as well. Yeah. I, I love talking about what I do, which is why I'm so grateful uh, to be on your podcast. I love connecting with new audiences and I love bringing science, bringing what I know and what I love about the universe to new audiences, to audiences who would never download my podcast, who would never turn on my TV show, who would never buy my book because science isn't for them. Well, I want to show them that they're wrong and I want to bring science to them in a way that they can appreciate and understand and get something out of. So I love working with artists. I love exploring new concepts, new ways of expressing science and exploring science or exploring concepts where science has something to say. But then there are also lots of other things to say about the topic. Like uh, one of my latest projects, I work with Siren Modern Dance in New York City. And over the course of a couple of years, we developed a performance called TikTok, where we explore the nature of time. And it's a beautiful performance. It's, it's so fun to do. Uh, I narrate a couple sections uh, discussing a scientific viewpoint of what we do understand about time. Turns out it's not all that much. <laughs> and it's set to Mozart. There's dance with the narration involved and integrated with it. Um, but the narration is just a small part of the performance because there's a lot more to say about the nature of time than what we can just understand through physics. You know, there's, there's memory and hope and anticipation and you know, a moment shared and, and, and just all these beautiful concepts of which physics is silent. Uh, but dance is, is vibrant. And so through the performance, through both the narration and the music and the choreography, we explore this, what is this thing that we're so intimately familiar with and yet no one can exactly uh, pin down and explain. And so that's, and then I, we do a performance of TikTok and there's a bunch of people in the crowd that would never buy my book, who would never, if I, if I created a lecture called, you know, let's explore time with Paul Sutter, they would never show up to that because it sounds too sciencey. But then they come and they explore and they learn a little bit about what science does have to say about this topic. And, and that's such a beautiful, uh, precious connection. 
I, I think it's fantastic, especially, you know, I mean, you've really made use of whatever medium you can to get through to people to help them understand what's out there and really sharing your passion too. So that's definitely uh, a big feather in your cap. Oh, thank you very much. It's, it's just a joy to share. Did you ever consider wanting to go up into space or are you just better on uh, <laughs> solid ground? Oh, I'm, I'm cool down here. <laughs> I'm a stay-at-home astronaut. <laughs> well, that's actually a good segue into uh, the next part because we should talk about your podcast a little bit. It, it is called Ask a Spaceman, and that is exactly the format of the show. I, I am a subscriber and I'm really enjoying it. And I'm not just saying that because you're my guest. <laughs> People contact you through social media and they ask you questions and that's what your episode becomes about. Yes, uh, it's such a fun a fun podcast. We're in the middle of our seventh season now and I have so many questions. I have questions I could go for another 20 years on this show. Uh, just this backlog of questions of just people who are curious about stuff they hear in the news or stuff they read about or little questions that's been about space that's been bugging them for a really long time. And so I pick the topics at random. I go through the archive of questions, of unanswered questions, and I pick whatever feels right. So we've dug deep into uh, cosmology and the Big Bang, and we've talked about quantum computers, and we've talked about string theory, and we've talked about supernova and kilonova and hypernova and all at regular nova too. Uh, we've talked about the fate of the Earth. We've talked about how stars are born. We've talked how, about how galaxies merge. Just, just this random walk through the universe and led by curiosity. There's probably a question for every star that's out there, I'm imagining. Uh, yeah, which is a lot. Um, <laughs> there are, uh, like, to give you some sense, there are a few hundred billion stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. And then observations suggest there are around two trillion galaxies in just the observable universe. So that adds up to a lot of stars. Being that I have you here, I was wondering if you could help me understand some of these questions about the universe. Some of these you've actually done episodes on and some of them I've heard and some of them I've not yet heard, but I'm looking forward to hearing them. So are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. This is going to sound like horrible puns and I apologize about being in the dark about certain things. <laughs> now, black holes. Now, they're yep. invisible, but they're basically caused by collapsing stars. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. So when a, a big enough star, and we're talking a star that's like mm, eight or 10-ish times the mass of our own sun, uh, when it dies, when it stops powering itself through nuclear fusion, it collapses. And there's enough weight, there's enough mass that nothing in the universe can resist that continued collapse. So it just crunches down, crunches down, squeezes down all the way to an infinitely tiny point, something we call a singularity. And that singularity gets surrounded by a one-way barrier that we call the event horizon. And there's your black hole. Okay. I was reading about something called a white hole because I know when black holes, if you go into the black hole, you can't come out because... It's stronger than gravity, so everything goes towards the singularity. Theory is that, that white holes are like black holes that are spitting things out. And do they think that that actually ties into the Big Bang Theory, where things got spat out and, and voila, the Milky Way was formed? So the white hole appears in the mathematics. So all, all the mathematics that we use to understand black holes comes from Einstein's 
theory of gravity, the general theory of relativity. That's how we get our understanding of black holes. That's how we first predicted their existence. Uh, in the mathematics, when you're crunching through the math and doing the solutions, you find that there's a solution called a black hole, which is where everything falls in, nothing can escape. And then there's also a complementary solution that you uh, call the white hole, where everything must get out and, and nothing can go in. That's the mathematics. And the mathematics, the game of physics, and we do this all the time in physics, is to take the mathematics and find what's actually out there in nature, because not all mathematical solutions are actually realized by nature. And we go out looking for white holes and we don't see any. And then when we dig into like, what would a white hole actually look like and behave, we find that they are incredibly unstable, that if a single bit of light were to even approach a white hole, the whole thing blows up. So we're pretty confident that nature doesn't actually manufacture white holes, that these are just an artifact of the equations. And artifacts of the equations always pop up in all physical theories. Uh, even Newton's laws governing the trajectory of a thrown baseball can give you solutions uh, that don't actually exist. It's not that big of a concern. We don't think white holes exist. Uh, the Big Bang however, is a real thing. Uh, right. And we have observational evidence for it. Uh, uh, but it's one of the worst names ever. And in fact, the Big Bang, the word was coined by an astronomer, Fred Hoyle, who was a critic of the Big Bang way back in the 40s and 50s. And so he used the term kind of derisively, and it just stuck. And we haven't been able to shake it off since. Um, you shouldn't think of the Big Bang as an explosion, as a pouring forth of stuff. Uh, the Big Bang was and is, continues to be to the present day, to be an expansion of space. Uh, through time. The Big Bang Theory says that a long time ago, 13.77 billion years, in case you're wondering, our entire observable universe was about the size of a peach and had a temperature of over a quadrillion degrees. That's the Big Bang. More things I'm in the dark about. I guess this is probably a sketchy subject with a lot of people that they don't know too much about it. What is dark matter? And they said that that's actually most of the matter in the universe and we can't see it? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> nature is under no obligation, one, to make sense. And two, <laughs> nature is under no obligation to have matter or components that are invisible, that are visible. Like, it's just, there's no requirement. It turns out, and astronomers struggled with this for decades before we came to this conclusion, but we can tell through a variety of observations that not all the matter in the universe is hot and glowy and easily accessible with, with telescopes. Turns out that around 85% of the mass of the universe is most likely some new particle, some new entity, uh, something that we have not encountered yet in our standard model of physics. Whatever this particle is, and we're not exactly sure what it is, doesn't interact with light. And so it doesn't glow, it doesn't emit, it doesn't reflect or absorb, uh, and you just can't see it with a telescope because it's not glowing, but it's there. And it can make its influence felt through gravity. So it's through the gravitational interactions of dark matter that we're able to infer its existence. 
So, for example, we look at galaxies and we see stars orbiting the center of their galaxy, just like our own star orbits the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, these stars are moving too fast. If you add up all the matter that you can see, all the stars and gas clouds and nebulae and all that, and you calculate its gravitational pull, the galaxies should have flung themselves apart billions of years ago. It's like a, it's like if you build a, a merry-go-round and, and you just hold it together with, with glue and you put it on max speed, it would just fall apart. There's, there needs to be more glue in there. Need, there needs to be something stronger holding it together. And then when we look at clusters of galaxies, these big collections of thousands of galaxies, we see the same thing. We see galaxies moving around way too quickly. Uh, the, ga- the galaxy cluster should have torn themselves apart billions of years ago. Uh, we can do this wonderful trick called gravitational lensing, where the path of light will get bent around massive objects. This is a prediction of general relativity. Uh, like uh, even our own sun, we can measure the, the bending of a starlight if that light passes close to the edge of the sun. So we can look at, say, a galaxy cluster and then look at some background galaxies behind it. And then that light from the background galaxies gets bent and distorted because of this lensing effect. And you can add up what it would take to make that lensing effect. And there's a lot more than meets the eye. There's some sort of invisible matter component to the universe. And there's more. We see it in some of the earliest light from the Big Bang. We see it in the growth of structures in our universe over the course of billions of years. Like We know that something funny is going on with the matter of the universe. And we know that the vast majority of the matter in our universe is of a form that we have not yet encountered in physics. And so we're trying to figure it out. In, in the meantime, we're calling it dark matter. Now, does dark matter tie in with dark energy? I know that's another phrase that I've heard that I'm kind of like, well, what exactly is that? <laughs> right, right, right. So <laughs> it, it's related in the sense that we don't know what's going on. Okay. Uh, other than that, uh, it, it's two separate phenomena. Uh, what, what's going on with dark energy is that um, we live in an expanding universe. Our universe is getting bigger and bigger every day. We've known that since the 1920s and Edwin Hubble's uh, observations of this. In 1997, we were starting to expand our surveys and push a little deeper, and we were able to measure this expansion rate. And we discovered in 1997 that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. So not only is the universe getting bigger and bigger every day, it's doing it's faster. Getting bigger, yeah, it's getting bigger and bigger faster and faster every day. We have no idea what's going on. And we call it dark energy because that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> that works for me because it's more suitable than Big Bang again, right? Yeah, it's it's like <laughs> something something's going on. We need a cool name uh, so that we know what we're all talking about. And then once we figure it out, it will, it will probably be replaced with a much less interesting name. I got a couple of questions for you that have to do with probably stuff that I'm sure people want to pick your brain about because of your occupation and uh, they love to debate it. We'll, we'll talk the first one, the flat earth theory. What is your best argument to just tell people, no, it's not flat. <laughs> it's a globe. <laughs> Trust me on this one. Here's why. So uh, the flat earth 
thing. It's a very, very interesting thing because uh, there's a wealth of, of easily accessible evidence uh, and experiments you can do in your own backyard uh, to demonstrate the curvature of the Earth. We've known the Earth, the Earth is curved for, for thousands of years. Uh, one of the simplest things you can do is wait for a lunar eclipse. This is when the Earth passes between the sun and the moon and the earth casts its shadow on the moon. A lunar eclipse, the, the shadow we cast on the moon is always a circle, no matter the time of the year, no matter how long the eclipse is, it's always a circle. And the only way for an object to cast a circular shadow all the time is if it's the object is a sphere. So if the earth were not a sphere, Sometimes it would cast a circular shadow if everything was lined up or just right. And, but most of the time it wouldn't. It'd be some weird, like little ellipse thing. So that's the simplest one. All you have to do is wait for a lunar eclipse. To me, the, the whole flat earth discussion, and, and I've done shows, I've done events, and, and people have brought up the flat earth. I think it has nothing to do with the geometry of the earth at all. Uh, because there's so much evidence. And, and so why is it a thing? I honestly think the flat earth discussion is really about something else. I think it's about a distrust of authority. I think it's a distrust of scientific authority. I think it's an expression of frustration. Some people and groups of people, uh, these groups of people tend to be disenfranchised, tend to be marginalized in, in our society. They rightly or wrongly distrust scientists and feel like scientists are are working with government entities to to oppress them and keep them down and remove their voice. So that's what I would rather address when we talk about the flat earth or when I meet a flat earther is not the geometry of the earth, but about worldviews and about the role of science in society and the lack of trust when it comes to science. Like, I'd rather, much rather ask, if, if when I do meet flat earthers, the less interesting question to me is, you know, how can I get them, convince them that the earth is round? The more interesting question to me is, why don't they trust science? And what can I do to try to fix that? That's an interesting perspective. I think lots of times when you probably, uh, I'm sure you more than me in, in your lifetime, when you're dealing with people who are arguing that the earth is flat, their argument behind it is, well, well, this is what they're telling you and they want us to believe this. And that's not based on science. That's like, I, like as you said, it's a problem with authority. It's, it's not saying, well, well, science is wrong because, you know, here's why. Right, exactly. It's, it's a rejection of scientific authority. And mm -hmm. flat earthers and, and many other groups, too, that fall into the same category, like, like anti-vaxxers or, or global warming skeptics. It's, it's not about the science. It's not about the evidence. It's about a rejection of a certain philosophy and worldview and the uh, presumed authority that comes with that. So you know what my next question is going to be, right? <laughs> Let's do it. The moon landing. Yeah, this it's a similar thing. Like, if you look at our technological capabilities in the 1960s, we had all the technology to land on the moon. It's just a bunch of rockets and some simple computers. We did not have the technology to fake a moon landing. 
like when the the Apollo astronauts are on the moon and they're kicking up dust, the dust follows perfect parabolic arcs. That's the only can do that in airless environment, and uh, and they follow uh, exactly the right trajectories uh, if you're in a low gravity environment, not the full gravity Earth. Like like yes, we could kind of sort of maybe fake that with modern day CGI and special effects, but we didn't have that technology. It's actually a harder problem to fake a moon landing than to just do a moon landing. You know, the joke is that uh, NASA, uh, they realized they couldn't actually send people to the moon. So they decided to fake it. So they hired Stanley Kubrick, you know, the greatest filmmaker of his generation. Uh, But Stanley Kubrick being the, a perfectionist auteur that he is, uh, insisted that he actually film astronauts on the moon in order to get it right. And so that's what he did. <laughs> You've addressed this on uh, one of your episodes. Uh, do you think that there's life on other planets? <laughs> I, I hope that there's life on other planets. Uh, you, it's impossible to say one way or the other. You know, on one hand, we have absolutely no evidence of any life outside the Earth whatsoever. And we've been listening and working and studying for a very long time. And so far, we've come up with nothing. On the other hand, it's a big universe out there with hundreds of billions of stars and a couple trillion galaxies. And like, man, it just would be a real big bummer if we really were alone. And, and that seemed, that, that the odds of us being alone without any proof, just seem astronomical. It, it seems a little too out there. So uh, I, I don't want this whole big universe to be just our playground. I want to share it. But even if we're not alone, even if there are other intelligent species out there, and maybe they've invented podcasts too, <laughs> you know, the, because the universe is such a big place and life certainly isn't common, and even if we're not alone, it's probably rare. The time and distance scales between stars is so unfathomably big that even if we're not alone in the universe, for all intents and purposes, we might as well be alone. Now, someday we might find some evidence of life on another planet. We might catch some radio signal of artificial origin there'll be a uh, might be a glimmer a whisper here and there but i i'm I'm sorry it's just it's a it's a big universe (laughs) there's something out there and we just don't know when we'll find it it's just way out there what is your feeling on how the earth will end well it's it's not it's it's much less of a feeling than a uh we know what's going to go down. And as the sun gets warmer, the, this warming sun has nothing to do with global warming. This is a process that plays out over millions of years. Just as stars age, they get a little bit brighter and a little bit hotter. And in about three to 500 million years, it will be so hot. Our sun will be a touch too bright. It'll be about 10 to 15% brighter than it is now. And at that point, you've run into a runaway greenhouse effect where our oceans evaporate, put a lot of moisture in the atmosphere that traps heat that causes more water to evaporate. Uh, and the cycle builds up until you've dried out all the water on the surface and it's all up in the atmosphere. 
And then without any oceans, you can't lubricate your te plate tectonics. So plate tectonics grinds to a halt. All the carbon seeps out of the ground eventually through the volcanic vents. Um, and you overload the atmosphere with carbon and it, the pressures and temperatures skyrocket and you essentially turn Earth into Venus. So this is actually, this happened to Venus about uh, two to three billion years ago. Um, we suspect Venus had liquid water oceans in a nice atmosphere uh, billions of years ago, but it got too hot and it spiraled out of control. So that's in a few hundred, there might be some weird kind of organism that ekes out some existence somewhere on the planet, but it's not going to be a fun ride. Um, and our Earth will hang out like that for another few billion years until our sun reaches the end stages of its life. Uh, one of the end stages of its life is it turns into a red giant, a swollen red star. And it's impossible to predict exactly, but we see stars similar to the sun in this life stage. And we suspect that our sun will reach, it will definitely consume Mercury and Venus, and it will come to close with the orbit of the Earth. So if we're lucky, we'll survive. Uh, we'll be totally incinerated, though, and only our core will be left. Uh, or if we're unlucky, the outer atmosphere of the sun will reach past the orbit of the Earth, in which case we'll just melt in about three minutes. The end. <laughs> <laughs> we won't end it on a gloomy note. Don't worry. I got a couple more questions. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned Venus and then you said at some point it had an atmosphere and something obviously happened. And there's, there's really been not so much interest lately within the last probably decade or so between Venus and Mars. And now with the, uh, with the Rover patrolling on Mars and they're, you know, they've, they're launching helicopters on Mars to take everything in. What, what do you think is the best, thing that we'll find on mars what we're trying to find on mars besides like laying the groundwork for future human missions is uh we know for a fact that that billions of years ago mars had liquid water on its surface and had a thick atmosphere uh, we can see the evidence all over the place uh, you know, we see river deltas dried up we see where um, in fact, right now, the current, the latest rover on Mars, Perseverance, it's on Jezero Crater, which was once filled with water, and it's in a region where the water broke through the crater wall, like, like water breaking through a dam, and then spread out in this big alluvial plain, and, and like, it's right there, and you can look at pictures of this happening on the Earth, and compare it to pictures happening of it happening on Mars, and they look identical. So billions of years ago, Mars had water. Billions of years ago, Earth had water. Billions of years ago, Earth had life. The big question is, billions of years ago, did Mars have life? And that's what we're trying to find out. Did Mars ever host life? If so, what did it look like? How did it act? Was it purely microbial? Did it ever become multicellular? Did, did anything, did it leave any trace? That's what we're trying to find is, is the origins of life. And if it happened somewhere else, that's the big question. If you were the head of NASA and you had an unlimited budget, what would be some of your projects that you would want to launch? 
unlimited budget NASA, this is the easy question because <laughs> uh, we could just do all the things. I think we have been neglecting the outer planets for far too long. Uranus and Neptune, we have not visited in over four decades. And there's a lot to uncover out there. There's a lot happening with the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. This is another place where there's uh, liquid water. Like we look at the moon of of Jupiter called Europa. It's covered in a thick shell of ice, but it's heated on the inside. And so there's this vast liquid water ocean hanging out in the outer parts of the solar system. There's more liquid water on these moons than there is on the Earth. And so, yeah, let's go there. I would want to send more missions to the Kuiper Belt and beyond to the outermost regions of the solar system. I would want to visit the surface of Venus again. It's been a few decades since we've done that. I I would just want to flood the solar system with, with space probes and try to understand what's going on. So I'll ask you a simpler question, but it has a little bit less to do with the universe, but in the universe of podcasts, what are some of the podcasts that you like to listen to? Oh, I'm actually, I'm a, I'm a huge history and tech geek. So right now I am listening to uh, Hardcore History along with half the human population listening to that podcast. Uh, I'm listening to a podcast on the history of Byzantium. I listen to some tech podcasts. Um, I, you know, I like hitting play just as much as anyone else. And we have this portion of the show and it is called Shameless Self-Promotion. Shameless Self-Promotion. And this is where you can let everybody know how they can get in touch with you because that's a big part of your show. And uh, if they want to follow up and uh, learn a little bit more about you and your books and anything else that you've got going on. All right. Well, the, the place to go is my website, pmsutter.com. That's P as in Paul, M as in Matthew, and Sutter, like Sutter, uh, S-U-T-T-E-R.com. That has links to everything I do. So you can... Get links to my books, which you can order on Amazon. You can buy Barnes & Noble. You can order an autographed copy from my website. You can get links there to my shows, to uh, my podcast, Ask the Spaceman, my weekly live stream show, Space Radio. Get links to the TV shows I host, like How the Universe Works on Science Channel and Space Out on Discovery. Uh, links to all my articles and blogs and the various outlets I submit to. And also links to all my social media profiles, so you can follow me there. And if people want to ask you questions for the show, what? What what do they need to do? So you can go to askaspaceband.com, which just sends you to a special page on pmsutter.com. And there's places to ask questions there. You can ask questions to askaspaceman at gmail.com, or you can use the hashtag askaspaceman on social media, and I'll pick it up. See, now I've kind of jumped the line with most of the people who are going to be hearing this. So I'll back off a little bit and give them a little chance to ask some of their questions. Go. So it's good to be polite. <laughs> and I got more, more of your episodes to catch up on as well. And this is Dr. Paul Sutter. He is the host of Ask a Spaceman. And we like podcasts that end with an exclamation point, just as this one does. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you again for having me. This was so much fun. We're on that internet thingy at sharepollution.com. 
And now it's time for Sherpa Suggestions. So for this week's Sherpa Suggestions, let's say you've been listening to Dr. Sutter's podcast, Ask a Spaceman, and you were wondering, Sherpa, are there more? Are there other podcasts that have to do with the universe and space? Why, yes, there are. Whether you're into stargazing, black holes, space exploration, or rocket science, there's a bunch of them, and I'm going to throw some your way. There is Star Talk Radio, that's with Neil deGrasse Tyson, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, Planetary Radio, Space Time with Stuart Gary, Astronomy Cast, the Space Junk Podcast, the Cosmic Companion, and finally, Houston, we have a podcast. Either one of these shows that you listen to, I'm sure you're going to gain a wealth of knowledge about the universe. And you know what? And all of these shows, I bet they are just out of this world. Oh! A very special thanks to Dr. Paul Sutter of Ask a Spaceman, and be sure to check out his podcast and also his website. There's a lot of cool things there. You will definitely learn stuff. I can guarantee you, folks. I've been listening to his show for a while, and I definitely feel a lot more informed when it comes to matters of the universe. You can listen to our show on any of your favorite podcast apps. You know that. And where else? The website. What's it called? Sherpollution.com. And you use that word Sherpollution to follow me on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and see what's going on with the show. See who next week's guest is because right now, I honestly don't know who next week's guest is, but I guess you're going to find out when it comes out next week. (laughs) Okay, Mr. Bruce, we've got to get out of here. I know you've got a rocket ship waiting for me. Let me put on my helmet and we will fly over the skies of Mount Podcastia. And you know, it's a pretty big trip. Good thing I packed some Pop-Tarts. See you, Rebels, next week. Viva la Revolution! Thanks for listening to Too Many Podcasts. Please disperse. You can go home now. I said you can go home now. Viva la Revolution! Viva la Chapalition. <coughs> oh. Yo, come back now, you hear? <laughs> <laughs>